Hello, everybody. Welcome to the class tonight. Uh, of course, this is our uh, normal Wednesday class. Uh, I haven't been doing because of some traveling or other things, but we're home now, staying home <laughs> for the foreseeable future. Uh, just me and a camera, which is normal with me. When you so. Uh, it's good that we're able to do it like this and, and just um, be able to share with you. Uh, there will be, you know, others that's doing this as well, and I appreciate uh, you guys tuning in. Our hope is that you're safe and that you're staying safe and that you're being cautious and um, safe. safety is your uh, priority in this situation. This is serious. This is a serious thing. I know... There are many out there that don't believe it <clears throat> or think that because of, you know, political situations that this is just a political ploy or stunt to close down churches, and it's not. It's not. Um, there are ways. Technology has given us ways to be able to reach out to you even from our dining room tables and share with you the reality. A building does not constitute the gathering of the church. Christ constitutes the gathering of the church. The breastplate of our high priest constitutes the gathering of the church. Now, of course, we love to gather and love to be together. But right now, there's a situation where people are vulnerable to this and need to be cared for. We need to put our, our self-concerns aside of just wanting to get together and think about the people we are called to think about and love and, and have compassion for. Put our egos aside and think about the people that we have some oversight of in these situations and put them first. And unfortunately, there are preachers around this local community and all around the country who are not doing that. And many because they want the tithes and the offerings that come in the pockets of the people when they come to the building. That's just a fact. Um, I listen to the excuses of many who, who do this because I've been watching. Because that's the thing that concerns me of how the body of Christ... The, Leaders in the body of Christ are responding to this, and it's not pretty, and it's unfortunate, and it's uh, discouraging and embarrassing, and hopefully those of us who are in this are not that way, that we understand that the church is the body of the Lord because of the indwelling of, a, of the Spirit of Christ and not because of our physical presence. Pick up a phone, talk, let's chat, Skype. Technology has made it possible. Right now, this is a situation where people are vulnerable to get sick and, and, and die because. Now, if they were just saying without this looming over us that, hey, you can't meet, then yes, there would be some persecution going on and we would have to balk at that. And I am wholeheartedly prepared to do so if that takes place. 
But right now, it doesn't seem to be that that's the case. Some political figures are going a little far, pushing the envelope, trying to get an agenda passed. Okay. But that should not over, override our sense to know that there is a present situation that can cause people to hurt, be hurt. And we love them enough not to put them in harm's way. And we can reach out in many ways just like this to be able to minister the truth of the gospel. Um, yeah, it may hurt our pockets for a little while. Fine. So what? My pocket's been hurt for many, many years um, because of this gospel. <laughs> uh, thankfully now, there are those who, who do help, and that's great. Um, but we need to put those people first and, and, and do that, and I hope that the church as a whole begins to consider that without trying to make this a, a fight between the Christians and the government or the Antichrist system and all the things I've heard. It's just ridiculous. And see, a lot of it stems from the fact that when we read the Scripture, many people's interpretation of the Scripture still has a New World Order Antichrist bent to it. So we can look at any situation like this that comes up, and they have throughout the years, 9-11, the, the, when I was first born again back during the Kuwait and Gulf War in that situation, that's what they were preaching then. This is the end. This is it. Uh, get ready. Uh, without really understanding that if it was the end, if these bad things were taking place, we would have already been sucked off the face of the earth if the pre Trib, which I was a part of, was a correct theology. It's those type of uh, non-Christ-centric or Christocentric understandings of the Scripture that causes these type of things. Or it's those who think that they are super-duper people of faith that can, you know, walk through hell backwards and hold a virus in their hand and it dies. Okay, miracles happen. Thank God for them. But let's not be silly in these situations and let's show some concern for our families and our neighbors. All right, so we're still in our look in Romans chapter 8. That was all to say, please be safe and uh, we love you. Romans ch uh, chapter 8 is where we are in this study. And we've been looking at... Um, these verses for some time and we have made some detours going back to the first part of Romans which is a necessity because of what was being said but now we're back in the in Romans 8 and we're going to start looking at a very misunderstood uh, portion of scripture and that's starting in verse 9 we've already been in the previous verses you can go back to other um, lessons to see that or go to our podcast the Satisfied God podcast to hear it um, that may be the better recordings but I think um, these are verses that again have been so misread misunderstood misapplied taken out of its context and when you do that you can again make it say anything you want but 
Romans chapter 8, verse 9, we'll start reading there. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. There's a statement of absolute truth, absolute fact, describing a continual, sorry, a continual state of being, a continual condition that has been wrought by the Spirit of God. Because then he goes on, if, here's the only condition, only caveat to that statement, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. If Christ is in you, this is so. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. It would be very interesting for you to go back and look at all the things that says, if Christ be in you, this is so, because this is so as well. All of these things speak of the same reality of a salvation that is complete, absolute, and perfect. And this is one of the aspects that can be described because the Spirit of Christ dwells in us, and that is that we are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Unfortunately, and this is the things we cover in the previous classes, unfortunately, the church world makes being in the flesh or being in the Spirit conditional upon attitudes, actions, or the lack thereof. That if you do these particular wrong things, you are in the flesh. If you do these things that are right, you must be in the spirit. If you act what we supposed to be Christ-like, then you're in the spirit. If you don't, then you're in the flesh. And you know that roller coaster ride, that up and down, that inconsistent thing that's always up to or always dependent upon another person's judgment or your own judgment to understand whether you are in one place or in the other. The fact is, if we are in Christ or if the Spirit dwells in you, then an absolute certainty is you are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit. You are not in the realm of Adam, you are in the realm or in the sphere or in Christ Jesus. And you cannot, here's the the hard thing for us to understand. This being the fact, if in fact the Spirit of God dwell in you, you cannot vacillate, not only metaphorically, but you cannot literally as a soul vacillate between one and the other. You are either dead to the one because you're found in the other, or you are dead in the one because you have not yet come to the other by the grace of God. That's the facts. And that's a fact we have to keep before us in this understanding, in this reality, in the context of these verses. We have to understand this. If we do not, then we can make the proceeding verses mean anything we want and we can push it off as, a, as clauses and conditions or we can push it off as futuristic. One day this will be so. And none of this is futuristic. We'll see that as we go in these classes because right here he states the linchpin of it all. But again... That's a fact that we have to contend with and have to, un have to understand is the linchpin that holds all of these things together. It, it holds together this entire chapter, what goes before it and what comes after it, and, sh and, and, and holds it together in a statement of fact 
eternal and divine truth of if Christ is in you, this is so. Not if you do things properly, if you abide by these rules. No, if God has wrought a miraculous thing in you and brought the spirit of Christ to live in your soul, made that an absolute reality through new birth, then you are not in the flesh. You're in the spirit. You are, as he says throughout this letter in different ways, Romans chapter 6 says it, Romans chapter 7 says it, especially Romans 6, that if you are dead to the one, if you are, I'm sorry, if you are slave or servant or in subjection or bound to, and that doesn't happen through a progression of dying to self, it happens through a work of the grace of God. You are brought under the headship of one man and therefore you are released from the headship of another. That's what the husband in the first part of chapter 7 is all about. It's about being found in one man and therefore dead to another. There's the transition. Take this all the way back to where we started. Two men, in one or in the other, dead in one, have life in another. There's the contrast that's being expressed here. And Paul is making the absolute statement of divine truth that if you have the spirit of Christ, that is the life, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the law of life in Christ Jesus. If the spirit of God in you has wrought righteousness of the law as fulfilled in you, because that's all the same thing, then this has rendered one absolute condition, one overriding reality. You are in the spirit and not in the flesh. What does that mean? Because that's going to be important as we go in this. That means you are in Christ and not in Adam. The overall theme of this is two men. He utilizes different ways of saying it, different terminologies to express the same thought. He's not changing his mind or changing realities he's addressing. He's addressing the same reality utilizing different terminologies. That's what he's doing. We need to understand that. But the absoluteness of this statement, if you're in Christ or if Christ is in you, then you are not in the flesh or you are no longer under the headship of the man of sin and death. You are no longer under the headship or bound under in subjection to the man of death and sin. That's Adam. In Adam all die because of the sin of one man, death and sin passed upon all so that all are sinners. That's what he's talking about here. We won't go any further in that. That's another class that we've already done. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And that belonging means is not under his subjection, not bound to his headship. You're not found in the realm of spirit if you have not the spirit in you. You are still belonging to another man. You're belonging to another. The first, the Adamic. He's speaking here about those who are not in Christ, those in whom the spirit does not dwell. 
They don't belong to him. He, they are not his possession. He is not their Lord or husband. Verse 10, here's the thing. Our consideration of these next verses, and we're going on, but 10 and 11 is probably where we're going to stop. Our consideration of 10 and 11 heavily leans upon, and is conditioned upon our understanding of verse 9. We could stay in verse 9 for the rest of this year, cloistered in, right? Every day. And never exhaust that. Never exhaust the certainty of that statement. And to understand what we're about to read, you have to lean heavily upon the certainty of the statement that he has just made in verse 9. We'll move on now. But if Christ is in you, same thing he's just said, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. If Christ is in you, listen to these words because these are words that have been so misunderstood. If Christ is in you, this is verse 10, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, King James would say he will also quicken your mortal bodies. These are important things that we need to look at and understand because, again, misunderstanding is rampant in these verses. But again, it all hinges upon what has previously been stated. It has to. The words cannot be divorced from the presentation of certainty that is made at the beginning of this chapter, not just verse 9, but at the very beginning of this chapter, of having the spirit, the law of the spirit of life, the greater law now living in him, being in him the righteousness of the law fulfilled, the spirit of the law now coming to fulfill in him what he could not by obedience to the law fulfill. That's the certainty we're addressing here. This all go back, goes back to, right, in Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. Where sin abounded much more now, the grace of God has abounded in Christ. That distinction is still paramount here, but we lose sight of the context of this whole letter and make it mean whatever we want. And that's dangerous when we're in these verses. And it takes away much of the glory and the weight of what Paul is saying here. So if they're divorced from what we have previously read in just chapter 8, that does a great deal of damage to the context of, of these verses that we're reading now. We have to stay in the flow of Paul. And what he's saying here, I wrote here through the presence of the spirit of life, he is free from the law of sin and death, that internal law, that nature, that seed nature, the nature of the seed he was born of, the corruption that he was, of which he was born. 
delivered from the body of death, from which he longed to be delivered as a man under sin, striving under Mosaic law. And that's the thing we have to realize. We have to keep in mind that these men under the law were still internally under the subjection to the headship of Adam. That was still the nature or the internal law and government that, that, that ruled and subjugated them to that man who was their head. So regardless of their external actions under the Mosaic law, the internal government determined their state. That We've said that throughout this, but that has to keep... We have to keep that before us. He's describing what he will go on to speak of as the liberty of the sons of God. He and all who partake of this uncondemned life possess. Importantly, that liberty is defined by the statement, the righteousness of the law now fulfilled in us. That's what he said previous to all these verses. Because it is a backdrop. It is, I'm sorry, it is backdrop, this statement, backdrop by the inability of the law. The inability of its perfect observance to actually render any internal emancipation or liberty. Thus the work of God necessitated to do what the law and our obedience to the law or man's obedience to the law or the Jew's obedience to the law could not do. This is wonderful reality. This is wonderful news, Right? That this righteousness that God demands, this life that God demands has never been required from us, but it has been imputed to us by God through faith. So the verses that we are reading now cannot actually be considered as conditions and clauses. He's speaking from a standpoint of our participation in and our union or marriage to the man, the new man, the man of spirit and life. He's not painting a picture that possesses multiple variables. That's how Christians present this. This is seen very plainly when he writes to them that what they now possess within their own soul, because he's given his, give his own personal uh, boasting in it, and now he's saying, this is not just me. This is yours. This is reality in you if the spirit dwells in you. And he's saying, what you now have in your soul, this is where we're going to go in chapter 8 further, is the entire hope or expectation of God fulfilled. The hope in which or for unto which he subjected an entire creation to its own vanity. That means under the law. He subjected all men to their own vanity. All creation to its own vanity, which is visualized more prominently with the Jew who were subjected to that law. But Romans 3 says plainly, the law concluded all men as sinners and under sin, under the headship of the man of sin, under the subjection to that kind and that seed, that nature. He's speaking to those whose source is of such a sufficient nature that he, as Jude would write in Jude chapter 
or Jude verse 24 and 25, he would write this, to him who is able to guard you, not stumbling, to set you in the presence of his glory, unblemished, in gladness, to the only wise God our Savior is glory and greatness, power and authority both now and to all the ages. Amen. One literal reading of Jude here is to keep you unfallen, unfalling, to keep you unfalling. I love that. To keep you in a state of unfalling. And when you read that, it's almost written in a way that can place the unfalling state not pertaining to those he's keeping, but to the one who is keeping us. He keeps you in the state unfallen. He keeps you unfalling. That means the man who keeps us never falls from his position as standing in the sight of God for us, never falls from that state of being the beloved of God, the one upon whom his gaze is forever fixed. The one who is keeping us, his unfalling condition, his perfection is sufficient to keep us as those graciously found in him, as those whose state is determined by his presence within. And when you look at the word keep, when he keeps us from falling, it says in the King James. The, the Greek word keep there actually has the idea, basic idea. It says here, I think this is in the uh, exegetical dictionary of the New Testament. It has the basic idea of actually keeping the law. Keeping a law. A law never being broken. See, that gives us another understanding of what it means to keep us unfalling. That means, just like Romans 8 says, his keeping of us is to render unto us or impute himself unto us as the law kept completely. As the righteousness the law demanded in its perfect presence. Beautiful. Beautiful. What a statement. further elaborated upon the nature of his keeping his abiding in us as the unbroken and untainted spirit or substance of which the law spoke the meaning and embodiment of its testimony as its origin and its consummation the beginning and the end this is from uh, Adams Clark and I just I put this in my notes because I got so excited when I read that about the one keeping us unfalling. From the uh, Adam Clark commentary, it says, where nothing can stand but him with exceeding great joy in finding yourself eternally out of the reach of possibly falling. Why? Found in him having nothing of our own. That solidifies the fact that we cannot fall from this place of absolute certainty of grace in Christ. Because his keeping power is sufficient. 
Why? Because he is the keeping of us. It's just like we've read before. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. The same reality here. What does that mean? That he is always before God just pleading our case and don't give up on him, God. He's going to make it one day. He's going to get better. And he's always in there just pleading our case. No, that's not what it's about at all. If you read it, it's about his living, being the certainty of the thing. In that he liveth, his ever living, his continual high priesthood that does not change, secures us. And that ever living in the sight of God as my very righteousness, as our very life, is his continual, unbroken, unchanging intercession for us. So, so <clears throat> no wonder Paul, in relationship to this in Romans 8, presents this concerning himself and now all of those who are in Christ with these beautiful, definitive words. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. That's what we're reading about here. And we're going to see that in a moment. This matter of no condemnation is not determined by those who are in Christ, but by the one who is in them, by the Christ who abides in them. So now turning to his true audience, he would say to them in verse 9, As for you, one translation says it that way, as for you, you are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. And he seems to lose sight of everything and, and hone in upon that certainty. You are definitely not in the flesh, but in the spirit. How can this be said so comprehensively? Because what we have presented as conditions and variables in Christianity are not. They are descriptors of a particular condition and state of being, rendered complete and without blemish in the presence of the Spirit himself. So we recognize that such a declaration is not due to Paul seeing that they are actively acting appropriately and doing what is required to be considered holy and righteous. However, Paul does not neglect to provide them and us who read it with the one and only certain basis for such and gives the sure and certain basis for this far-reaching statement. If Christ, if the Spirit is resident in you. So now, the Spirit of God dwells in us and he says this. In verse 10, and I'm reading from King James, If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. That may be as far as we get, but let me read the next verse. But if the spirit of him that raised Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you by his spirit that dwells in you. As we begin this, we have to focus again on the basis of what will proceed. The basis of what will proceed, not precede, proceed, is this, if Christ be in you. 
This whole thing hinges upon if the Spirit is in you, if Christ is in you. There, it's all held together right there. And all made sure right there. He doesn't make this conditional upon your, your exercise or your effort. He makes this sure before your effort begins, before your exercise even starts. That's beautiful. Here's the basis. <clears throat> if Christ be in you. This is stating a true state of being, a condition wrought of God internally. It is declaring a transaction that is wrought in immediate condition that is being progressively known and comprehended in the heart of the believer through the revelation of the one who has made this so, Christ himself. <coughs> However, we are brought immediately, not progressively. The progression is, the progressive work is in the understanding, the knowledge, the comprehension, the growth. The true growth is our, our ongoing apprehension of the understanding and the comprehension that it is not I but Christ. The growth is not that it finally become not I but Christ. Growth is in understanding greater and more perfectly that it is not I but Christ from the very beginning of our salvation. But although it is progressively known in the revelation of Christ... We are immediately brought through the presence of Christ at new birth from death to life. From flesh to spirit or Adam to Christ. Because all of those things are declaring the same thing. From the body of death to the body of life. To the body of the spirit. Remember, we are not leaving behind the contrast between the two states determined by two men. He's actually continuing to describe. The means by which we are free from the one and married to another. How we are now righteous due to our being joined to the man of spirit. We have to understand the immediate comprehensive nature of our being brought from corruption to incorruptibility. From sin to righteousness. And this is still, that, that misunderstanding is why some people still, most people, still dispensationalize or futuristically interpret Portions of scripture such as 1 Corinthians 15. And he's speaking there beautifully as he says concerning the resurrection. The one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. Because he begins the whole narrative about this work of the resurrection in us, freeing us from sin and the law, the victory he has wrought. By saying, if he's not raised, then we have no hope and we are yet in our sins. So he is still, the, the resurrection and our understanding of this has everything to do with the fact that we are either dead in sin or dead to sin. That's what this is all about, the putting off and the putting on. That's a work of grace. That's the work of salvation. Now, Salvation is not something that he gives us in piecemeal as if we are crawling into the door progressively. He's giving us a state. He has given us a state substantiated by the sheer sufficiency of his abiding presence within. And we grow up in the revealing of that one in the knowledge of his sufficiency. And as we proceed in these verses, let's keep before us 
the arguments that have been made throughout these chapters. That's important. I keep reiterating that. It's what, what he is saying is directly concerning a current state of being of those who are in Christ. What has transpired as a spiritual and effectual transaction. It shows us the fact of being no longer slaves of sin and thus slaves of righteousness. Not being not being free from righteousness, but having through the presence of the life of Christ within, the righteousness of God himself fully. This presents our current condition and the assurance of being no longer as once we were subject to sin and death, but now fully captured by and married to the man of spirit. Again, referencing Romans 7. This all connects. Keep it in mind, it all connects. Let me just give you a, as, with all the searching, and we're going to throw a lot of verses and a lot of things out there, what he said and what he's saying here. Because this is important. This is the thing that Paul is actually saying. This is the thing we read in Romans chapter 5 and Romans 7, really, throughout. You read the same thing being stated, but here it's stated differently, but the same thing is being stated. So this is the interpretation that I'm going to just share with you. This is my uh, amplified version of it. And it's, I'm sure it will be contrary to most people's idea, but just hear me out. Paul is making the point that if Christ is in you back to verse 10 if Christ is in you although death was the state of those who were in the flesh those who were in Adam to the same degree that you were completely subjugated to the sin and the death that was rendered unto you in Adam that ruled you in Adam, although that was true. And sin was a, a condition of your soul while you were in that body of death. This is what we're talking about. Just as sure as that was so, you are now, just as surely, by the presence of the Spirit of life, Your soul has righteousness as its true condition, as its present condition. This makes us understand why he will further write concerning how we are no longer debtors to the flesh. Meaning, have no obligation to live according to the flesh because it never enabled us or allowed us or to achieve anything of divine substance. It was never a means of accomplishment. It was just the opposite. It was the, it was the obstacle in the way. Being in Adam was the obstacle to righteousness. What had to happen? You had to be brought into another and therefore dead to the, to the first. You had to become dead to the first by being born again of the seed of another man and brought into union and under the headship of this. And so he's saying here, and this is what we miss, 
He's saying here that just as sure as it was, although this is so in the body of death in Adam, that sin was present and sin governed and ruled. Just as surely, righteousness is present because the life in which that righteousness exists is present in you. That's what he's saying in these verses. And that goes right back to what we read in Romans 5 that although sin abounded much more now sin abounded in this state, in Adam, in sin, in death, but now the grace of God has much more abounded and reigned in the presence of a life. Sin once reigned. That being so, yes. But now much more. Righteousness and life and grace reigns in Christ Jesus. Same things are being described here. And if we read it all in the same context, you see it. You're not in the flesh. You're in the spirit. And just as so it was true. And these are the things that you consider, I know. But just as surely as sin was your state at, in the body of death, in the flesh, in Adam, now righteousness is your state in the spirit. And as we proceed... This verse goes absolutely hand in hand. This is, and we're going to read this later, but this goes hand in hand with what he says in Colossians chapter 2. Where he would say in verse 23... And this is, uh, the Weiss translation says it better, and I'll read the end of it in the Weiss translation. Which things have indeed a show of wisdom, and that's uh, about the things you were dead to. Touch not, taste not, handle not, because that's what he's talking about. Men under Adam's headship still go into the law to try to find righteousness. The whole thing's being described here as futility. Which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will, worship, humility, neglecting of the body. And then the Weiss goes on and says, and they have no value as a remedy to the indulgence of the flesh. Meaning they have no power to actually fix the situation. Why? Because there's no fix to the situation. The, the, being in the flesh has no remedy, has no fix. It has to be fixed by becoming dead to it. By being severed from it by the work of the Spirit, internally circumcised. That's why he goes on, why he prefaced all this about being circumcised by circumcision not made with hands. That's the thing that remedied the whole reality. And if that be so, why is though living in this body of death, living in sin, living in this state of 
<coughs> sinfulness and missing the mark, do you still abide by these things that are tools and methodologies these people preach to you as means to achieve something God has already achieved in you by imputation through grace by faith? We'll, get, we'll, we'll go more into chapter 2 of Colossians later in the next verses. As we proceed to these verses, we have to review that what we've said concerning the earlier verse, this verse does, does absolutely go hand in hand with it, but it has been misunderstood and disconnected from that verse. However, it shows again the strong and conclusive nature of the new life in Christ that has freed us from the law of sin and death, that has brought us from the flesh into the spirit. The, the use of the word body, this is important, and we're going to give some uh, other people saying the same thing, other commentaries. The use of the word body automatically causes many to think of the natural body being subject to physical death, and that's how this has been preached by many. Although the body is dead because of sin, that means that body is subject to death and it will go to dirt. Yes, that's true. Absolutely. But that's not what he's talking about here. Actually, Paul speaks earlier concerning the body that's being referred to here as the body that bound him irrevocably and made all actions toward the good under the law Null and void. It is a body that is earlier referred to as a husband. Yet under subjection to that husband. Bound within the sphere of the body of the death and the sin. Because he uses the definite article in these. The death and the sin that internally governs. Now, refer this back to Romans 7 and the body of death from which Paul cried to be delivered. Since we are in Christ, we are dead to that body. We are no longer under subjection to that body. We have been severed from what he says in Colossians here. Uh, where is it at? Um, In whom you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That's the body he's talking about. As long as we were in that body, of that body, subject to that body, bound to that body, or that body bound to us in the... <coughs> excuse me, this is, I shouldn't do that. I'm terrible. Um, <laughs> Bound to the body of death. As long as that was true. But now we have been circumcised. In, internally by the spirit. Through the circumcision not made with hands. In the putting off of that entire body of sin. The sins of the flesh. The sin that was reality. Due to the fact that we were in Adam. Now, since we are in Christ, Paul will say, we are dead to that body, that man, that condition. So slavery, subjugation to sin and death was our state due to sin. 
We are now partakers of life in whom righteousness is fully achieved and fully provided by grace. That's what he's addressing here. That's what he's addressing here. Romans 7, 24, and this is from some uh, commentary. This is from the Adam Clark commentary going back to the body of death because this is what they're saying the body of death is referring to. Or the body he's referring to in Romans 8 is, is speaking of. Romans seven twenty four. listen to this. Having long maintained, this is Adam Clark's commentary of this. Having long maintained a useless conflict against innumerable hosts and irresistible might, he is at last wounded and taken prisoner. And to render his state more miserable is not only encompassed by the slaughtered, but now chained to a dead body. There seems here to be an allusion to an ancient custom of certain tyrants who bound a dead body to a living man and obliged him to carry it about until the contagion from that putrid mass took away his own life. You see that? There's the body that sin was the result of or sin was the fruit and death was the fruit of being bound to that body, of being found in that body. And in that, there was a contagion of sin. There was a contagion that passed. That is a fitting analogy now, right? The contagion of that putrid mass that infiltrated every pore and rendered death and rendered life absolutely impossible. Romans 7, 24 again. This is from the Barnes notes of the Bible. He says the expression body of death is a Hebraism. It means the whole expression means the corrupt principle that governs mankind. And that's an internal government. It speaks of an entire mass of corruptibility and sin that was the source determining all things regarding man's state in God's sight. See, this can be seen in Galatians 3, where the life for which the law gave demand and commanded that life to be reality had to be provided to the soul before righteousness could ever be a condition in which that soul could boast because death and sin held us. Another life had to come, rendering the soul alive in one man, dead to another. And where the one man made sin the present condition and rendered righteousness impossible, this man rendered righteousness as complete and sin impossible. That's what we're addressing. Just as sure as this body of death was sin, and sin was the state as long as you remained bound to that body, found in that man, now righteousness because of the presence of life is your state by the presence of Christ in you. What a wonderful thing. There is a thing here that I have written as a misunderstanding of these comments. This is a comment that was written 
yet their souls being quickened by the indwelling spirit. And this is his interpretation of Romans 8.10. Their souls being quickened by the indwelling spirit of Christ, which enables them to live a life of righteousness, they receive a full assurance that their bodies, which are now condemned to death because of sin, shall one day be raised again to life of immortal glory. See, we twist these things. Look at the perspective. This is also that these bodies of dirt would eventually rise to immortal life and glory. No, it's not. Paul is speaking of an immediate and sufficient transition that has taken place due to our union with the second man, the resurrection himself, immortality himself, where immortality has overtaken mortality and incorruptibility has overtaken corruption. Now, this is from the Barnes notes as well. He says, I understand the passage. This is Romans 8.10, his commentary. I understand the passage in the following manner. The body refers to that of which the apostle had said so much in the previous chapters. The flesh, the man before conversion, or the man bound to sin and death. It is subject to, corrupt, to corruption and those desires, and may be said thus to be dead. It has none of the elements of spiritual life. It is under the reign of sin and death. That's, what he's refer that's the body he's referring to here. As long as you're bound to that body, sin is your kind. But just as sure as that enslavement was so, now because Christ is in you, righteousness is so by the presence of him. Life is so by the presence of him. He goes on here. <clears throat> the expression is an admission of the apostle or a summary statement of what has before been shown. It is to be admitted indeed, or it is true, that the unrenewed nature... The man who is not converted under the influence of the flesh is dead spiritually. Sin has its seat in the internally, and the whole body may be admitted thus to be dead or corrupt. He's saying it. He, he, he's saying it here. Everything of that is dead, dead range, death range, sin range, and assures that is so. Now the opposite is so. The greater thing is so. The perfect life is present. We must understand the subjection to corrupt passions are not equal to doing corrupt things. It's an internal subjection to an innate, inborn nature. Do you do these certain things? Guess what? If you're not born again, you're subject to that nature, that corruption. Do you, do, do you not do these things? Still, you're subject. That doesn't matter. Doing or not doing doesn't matter. It's about an internal government. That's what he means when he says he gives this list of so many different bad actions, and he says, or bad adjectives or descriptors, and he says, and such were some of you. What do you mean, Paul? Not all of us were sinful? Yes, yes. But some were adulterers. Some were fornicators. Some were I, idolater. Some were lewd. So blah blah blah. All were subject to the source out from which all of those things that some of them were proceeded. Now, 
<clears throat> but the Spirit. This is now the next thing. There is a statement, there's a 3303 is a, is, a, is a word that is missing in many of the translations of this verse. It's 3303, the, I think the Weist uses it. But it is a marker set of items in contrast with one another. Meaning, in this, he is actually making a contrast between, between two states. He's not saying, this is so, and this is the promise too. This is so, and this is so. He's contrasting two things, and that's what uh, 3303, that word, if you'll go to interlinear, I think you'll see it. And it's untranslated in many things, but it's a vital. It means indeed. That's, that's the word. Indeed, this is so. If this is so, indeed, this is so. If this was the truth, indeed, in contrast to that, this is so. Why? Because now there's been a transaction. You are not in the flesh where this was so. You are in the spirit where this new thing is so. So the contrast is still being abided by in these verses. The spirit in Romans 8:10, when he uses the, now he's using not the body of sin, but the spirit is life. It stands opposed to the body, meaning it's the totally different thing. Two opposing things. It means the soul, not, not the spirit, but the soul. Where this whole thing brought, brought death, the soul now has life because of the life of the spirit. The soul, the man who is now alive who was under the influence of the living principle. It was imbued with the life which the gospel imparts, or Christ imparts. Um, what he's saying is the spirit communicates life to the soul and recovers man from his death in sin to life in Christ. It brings man from death in sin to life in Christ. And this is what, this is Barn notes again. He's saying that's the contrast being addressed here. It's not about, yeah, the body's going to die one day, but you've got to promise that sucker is going to get raised up again and be glorified. No, it's not, that's not it. He's talking about a state in the body of sin that he talks about in, in, in Romans 7, and now a state as those who now have the spirit of life, where righteousness fulfilled is bestowed. Read all of that, chapter 7, chapter 8, and then read these verses, and you'll see it. And in my notes here, I went back to Colossians 2, 4, but we've already looked at that. So I'm going to repeat this just, just for your consideration once again. Here's what's being said. He's making the point that if Christ is in you, then to the same degree that you were completely subjugated to sin and death in Adam, to that body of death, you now, due to the grace of God that has operated and brought you from death into life, you are now surely... By the presence of the life of the Spirit in your soul, have you now have righteousness as your condition. 
righteousness. Why? Because he's made unto us. That's why this is all lynched to or hinged upon if he is in you. That's the whole point. I'm out of time. I want you to understand how Paul is presenting to the Romans the liberating certainty of the righteousness that is due to the presence of the law of the life of the Spirit. He's writing these words to encourage them in their present and greatly effectual state of being in Christ. And I want this to sink in. Paul is encouraging them as as those possessing the same freedom from sin and death that he states he individually enjoys. It's a freedom from an internal state of subjugation to corruption and death. He lives constantly under that subjugation. He lived constantly frustrated with his inability to actually accomplish with outward effort of law due to the corrupt source, the wellspring of sin and death. This will be borne out as we proceed because, again, he will go on and give them an even grander view of their state if Christ dwells in you, that state. If he's in you, then this is your state. He's going to give them an even greater view of that when he begins to talk about the overall reality that they possess as the certain fulfillment of God's hope throughout all creation in the age of testimony up to that present moment, everything God intended and hoped for in the subjugating of the entire creation to its own vanity, they possess it as its certainty, as realized, as perfect. Remember, that is the basis of his argument because that is the standard by which his own deliverance and liberty in Christ was accomplished. Paul is writing these words to make apparent the contrast that he has made throughout these letters. A contrast we have focused on throughout our consideration of these chapters. If I may use my own words here just to state it one last time and conclude this lesson, I would word it this way. As sure, as certain as it was when you were in Adam, in the flesh, married to the first, bound to a body of sin, having death as your condition, through an constant and irreparable presence of sin, it is now as certain that through the presence of Christ, the spirit of life, that your soul has eternal life, the life demanded but never provided by the law to those who were under sin's dominion, but life now present in the soul in all of its fullness, providing to us a present state of completion due to the imputation of righteousness wrought of God. He's not preventing this as conditional matters, clauses in the contract of relationship. He's writing these statements to ensure those in whom Christ the Spirit of Christ abides concerning their present and effectual state. It is through the imputation of righteousness through the presence of the Spirit that our souls now possess a life that they could not possess otherwise while still bound to sin and death in Adam. 
So just consider this with me and then we'll go on because the next verse is just as misunderstood. But if we keep it in these context, if we look at it in the way that all the other verses, all the other contrasting statements, all of the other ways that Paul says it throughout just, just this letter, but you can go in many other letters, just this letter, if we keep it in the context, you'll see the beauty of these statements and how, again, as, as I said, Paul is encouraging them in their present state, not giving them more conditions and clauses to worry about. And he's definitely not giving them hope for some future thing that's going to come one day. We're talking about a reality of a life in whom, in which, I'm sorry, there is no condemnation. And what that actually has wrought and brought about. And that's what he's addressing here. So I hope this has helped. I hope this has clarified some things in those verses in these lessons. Again, thanks for tuning in. Glad we're able to come to you this way. Love you very much. Amen.